couple of new people here in the room with us this morning. We want to make sure we kind of bring everyone up to date where we're at. Someone tell me what we see the subject of Luke being about. What is our major subject line that's going on in Luke? Who is our major subject in Luke? Let me rephrase the question. Jesus. Okay, good. Good answer. <laughs> Jesus, God, love, right? Covenant. <laughs> Don't forget covenant. Um, okay, so major subject is Jesus. Concerning Jesus, what is the author's major purpose? What does he want us to know about Jesus? Okay, it's a it's been given to us in chapter one, verses one through four. is a very beautiful, basically it's a it's a I am writing statement. It's a purpose statement for you. So it's one of the few books that does it so clearly. It lays it out. This is why I'm writing. I'm writing to you this very con, in a consecutive order. These things about Jesus, and he he says in that those verses, um, others before him had compiled an account. Now, who would those others be? What other writings have covered these subjects before? Yeah. There you go. The other Gospels, right? So when you think about the Gospels, for us this morning, one of the important uh, things that we're going to be grabbing hold of is the synoptics of Gospels. When there is a record that gives you a synoptic account, what do you see in that? How do you see that being a value to you when you're looking at anything scriptural? As far as specific subjects, like this morning's subject. Okay. Accountability. Accountability. Can you explain that a little bit more? No, the question is, how do, how do the, the synoptics help us as we're looking at our subject matter? How is a synoptic account beneficial? Very good. You go, Robert. So happy to have you back. <laughs> He's got it. Well, it, you know, that's it. I mean, if you think about it just logically, the point is, is if you get the same account given to you by three different friends, they all went to the same party, but three friends are going to tell you, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get similar stories, but you're also going to get additional details about other, about from each one, right? Because each one of them either was focused on a certain uh, thing that was taking place at that moment, or they're viewing it from a perspective that's slightly different, right? They're the way what they're bringing in as they're receiving in the information, they're filtering it through their personal life need or experience, right? So when we look at the Gospels, the Gospels are written by four different writers under inspiration of God, of course, right? God is the true author of it. But God writes through these men so that each of them then uh, uh, approaches the same subject matter, but gives it from the perspective of what their, their purpose for writing is about. In this record here for Luke, the author's purpose is to teach us something about Jesus. It's to give us a written account by it's from his perspective. So he validates that the others have got a perspective and they've written it. But now he's adding right? And he says, it seems fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully. Now, what does that tell us about this writer? He was not an eyewitness of all of these things, right? But that he compiled it by investigating and interviewing others. So that's another important. Now, what 
that little point there be important for us when we're looking at the synoptic gospels that he's doing it through investigation as opposed to they who were eyewitnesses maybe maybe there's additional perspective okay yes There you go, because he's actually taking insight from various people that he's interviewed, and then he's compiling it. That's what he's told us he's done, right? So the event that he's heard uh, about the subject matter for us in chapter 21 is he's gathered this all information together and compiled it and written it down. So it's going to be, sometimes the wording is going to be stated maybe uh, just a little differently. However, there should be similarities, yes? If it's truly synoptic, the same account, it should they should pan out and match one another. Yes, yeah, Robert. Yeah, there you go. I like that analogy. That's good. Lee Strobel, Luke and Lee Strobel. Got to remember that one. <laughs> That's kind of that is that is good. Now, when we talked about the authors compiling all this, he was compiling it for this man, Theophilus, right? And he, uh, when he spoke about Theophilus, he called him, um, let's see, where is his name? Most excellent. Now, what did we learn about that point? Why most excellent? What does that tell us about who he was writing and compiling this for? Some kind of an official, either either legal or governmental or something like that. Therefore, just by that alone and the fact that he's compiled it in this consecutive account in the way that he did, what does that tell you about the possibilities of how this document would be used by the one he's compiling it for? Almost like an official report, right? So if you think of it from that perspective, how important do you think even from his human perspective, obviously the Holy Spirit's guiding this, right? But even from a human perspective, how seriously do you think this author took the need for accuracy and truthfulness in the things that he wrote? There you go. He said, this is the exact truth about those things which occurred, right? And he says it's... Um, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. So this author is compiling these exact thoughts. Now, that right there tells us why he's what prompted him to write, correct? As we moved into studying the book, what we came to see is his major subject was Jesus. That's pretty obvious. Now, concerning Jesus, what seems to be the major emphasis of his lessons, the things that he is covering? What about Jesus is he wanting us to know? Pardon? Okay, there. it sure does show a lot of fulfillment of prophecy, right? Well, if it's fulfillment of prophecy, then what about Jesus does that tell us? What quality about Jesus... Is he trying to clarify or make you understand about who this man Jesus is? Yes. Fully God, fully man. What are the titles he uses for? The Son of Man, right? 
the Christ, the Messiah, he doesn't use Messiah in this text, but the translation Christ and Messiah the same. So if he's the son of man, and he's being emphasized that the son of man came to fulfill prophecy, then what we come to see then is this is the reason he keeps quoting so many prophetic um, scriptures and taking us back into the Old Testament, how Jesus fulfilled this and fulfilled this and fulfilled this, right? As it was written, as it was written. And even in this week's uh, uh, chapter 21, twice he says, God's word will not fail. God's word will be fulfilled, right? So there's a very strong emphasis on the fact that scripture was written about this man, the Christ, Jesus, that he is giving an exact account about. And he is saying, and he is is fulfilling all these things, right? And so as we look at these, uh, the lesson in the book of Luke, we're seeing that he is being presented as the son of man. Now, the son of man, as we open the book, right at the beginning in chapter one and two, what are the first things that he makes sure that we understand about who he is? Oh, right, that he comes from the line of David, that he, and that, that literally then as the son of David, right? Because that's a phrase that gets used a lot, right, Carol? Okay, if, if he keeps being, being called the son of David, what quality of Jesus does that kind of highlight about who this Jesus is? That he's man, that he's God, that he's God come in flesh, all right? So, and as man, what is it from, I'll just give you a really big hint. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. What is being fulfilled in Scripture that the Son of Man came, the Son of David, the seed, the seed that was promised? So when we look at this uh, Jesus in the book of Luke, you really have to let your mind grab hold of those foundational truths about prophetic utterance concerning his coming. Right, and there has to be a connection. This author does that. Now he never actually says, "Go back to Genesis, read chapter three. Now connect that to uh, Genesis 15, where he's promised again, and now connect that all the way into Galatians three, where he the seed is identified as being Christ Himself." But that, in fact, is what he does in this book. He can, he can, he takes that that anchor at Genesis three, and he threads it all the way through this, the scriptures, all the way up to where we are now. And in Luke, he keeps casting his line back and grabbing hold of different truths about what was said about who he would be and about what he would do and where he would come from and how he would, you know, uh, what things he would fulfill. The the pro- and he. He laces them all throughout all of the Gospel of Luke for us so that we can absolutely, without uh, question, identify that this, in fact, is the Son of Man, the seed that God promised to Israel, to humanity, the seed that would do what? And what is the seed going to do when he comes, according to, to Genesis 3? Say it nice and loudly, Kathleen. There you go. He is going to crush the head of Satan. Now, we've been over this a million times. We're going to do it again. In crushing the head of Satan and in being the seed that's going to come and take care of the issue of Satan, what what are some of the problems that came about as a result of the garden sin that we're seeing in the book of Luke in particular, but we see them everywhere in Scripture. You see them if you look around in the world. What are the problems that, what is the result of sin coming into the world? What happened? Say it again. Death. 
Death, number one, death entered into the world, right? So what do we see Jesus doing throughout the book of Luke? He bring, bringing people back from dead, right? Raising the dead, okay? So we see the, the seed, how he's been identified, how he's fulfilled the scriptures, and now we see that, that same seed coming to the world, and he is bringing people back from the dead in part of his ministry. So that's one thing. He, he basically conquers the, the issue of death, which was a consequence of the sin in the garden. What else? Okay, all the demonic stuff. So we've got the the demon issue handled, which is Satan. Literally, the coming and crushing of the head of Satan kind of encompasses a lot of things, but specifically demonic presence that comes into the world that now is our enemy, where before what what was man associated with in the garden? Who did? Walking with God. In the beginning, that's where God intended was for you and I, as humanity, to walk in the very presence of God, to walk with God, and for him to be in our lives. And to be in our lives in what way? What was he to be for us, uh, judicially and federally, huh? Our ruler, our God, our king, right? So he came, he crushed the head of Satan. So what is the the pictorial, what is the, um, not, not pictorial, what is the... Um, what are the the things that Jesus did concerning demonic things when he came into the world? Yeah. There you go. Right. So as he cast out demons, he was actually therefore resolving or redeeming or or conquering the issue of demonic presence in our life or demonic temptations, demonic, right? And as a matter of fact, when Jesus came into his public ministry, what was the first thing he battled? Who was the first one that he battled? Satan, right? So he had his own wilderness experience with with Satan tempting him as well, and he overcame that personally, and then he proceeded to go into ministry and to conquer demonic issues, right? So he's handled death and he's handled demonic issues. What was the other consequences of sin? Sorry, don't. It's kind of, no, don't scratch your head. <laughs> Sorry. What, what are some other things? Disease. Oh, boy. Do we know that one or not, right? Okay, so if you have disease in the world, what is another thing Jesus then is seen throughout all of the book of Luke doing? Healing and curing disease. So when when God said, I will send a seed, right? The seed who in this text is referred to as the son of man, right? Or the son of David, right? He's He is the fulfillment of that promise of him. He has come. He has conquered death. He has, he has conquered disease. He has conquered the demonic forces, right? And, and And by doing that, by the way, John tells us that, no one could do the things that he did, least God be with him. So he was proving in a very powerful, supernatural way that, in fact, he was who he was claiming to be, that he he was God come in flesh. Now, the last one that's probably a little more um, subtle, but we really it's very strongly emphasized in this book, what is it ultimately that God wants to be for us and that he was lost in the garden? We've actually already mentioned it, but... Right. There you go. A restored relationship where God would be our king 
and and we would be his people, right? So in Luke, he's showing him that one of the things that he is this seed when he came, he would be once again restoring his position as the king, right? And that we would then be, again once again finally be his people in relationship with him again, restored relationship, a continual fellowship and intimacy that had been lost in the garden. Isn't that amazing what we've learned in Luke? He is doing all four of those things in this book. He is showing himself as the one who who conquers death, who cures diseases, who battles the demonic forces and is is overpowering them, and that he is restoring himself as the king in, in our lives and in our world. Yes. 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 Okay. So, yes. All right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So now, what? Now that you've kind of seen a big overview of what's been going on in the book of Luke once again, you got your your thinking camps on. Now we're moving into uh, little by little with each of our chapters, um, just sort of the prog- the progression of insights and order of, as to how Jesus um, presents or how the author presents who Jesus is. We started in chapter uh, 1 all the way, now we're all the way to 21. What are some of the highlights that you've seen in this study at this point? Just for your own, this is not review, this is just you personally. What have you seen in the book of Luke so far that you personally feel that has really um, either empowered you in some way or has ministered to your heart or has given you some comfort or confidence in your personal faith walk at this juncture where we're at? Well, for me personally, it's really hot in here. Is there any way to turn the AC on? Anybody know how? Mm-hmm. Oh. I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, personally, I see the because I study end time stuff a lot. I see the divisiveness and the, and the extreme nature of the black and white of good and evil, mm-hmm. and it's being talked about here, and um, and how people how people are going to be divided, families can be divided, friends can be divided, you know. How does that insight help you? How has that ministered to you? Reading what's been written about those things happening, the truth of them, the facts of them, what, how is that? It's not just me feeling anxious about what I can see or participate in or whatever in the world. I see that it's prophetic. Yeah. And it is happening. And again, that solidifies my, my confidence in the Bible. There you go. Uh, you know, I, I don't know about all of you, but uh, it seems like on a pretty regular basis, uh, Satan throws his ugly face right in my face, and he and he sends some kind of adversity or conflict, right? There's either arguments or or disagreements or points of view that get you know that get me ruffled a little bit, and sometimes I think sometimes it catches me by surprise, especially if it comes from within the church, for instance, rather than from without. But from either direction, when you go back into the word of God on the whole, 
um, and you begin to read that these things ha have happened, that these things are predicted to happen, that they are things that you can expect to happen. I came to bring a sword, right? Not to bring peace, but but division. This, Luke has taught us that, right? And so on the one hand, it sounds that sounds kind of negative, right? Almost sounds like, what? I thought God was like love, right? No, he says, I've... I've I've come to bring a sword. Why? Because because why? why? Why the sword? Why does he bring that subject matter up? Okay, there's going to be judgment against sin. What happens when you enter into a room, you're all aglow of your righteous, you know, nature, and you don't even have to speak a word, but your very presence, all of a sudden, people around you start getting upset with you right? Or if you give an opinion which is counter to theirs, then comes real fireworks, right? We, in our, in our world right now today, we look at pol politics as one of, I mean, it's a really big obvious things, is there's such a big wide divide between one opinion and the other. And on any given subject, this, this deep cravine that is in between us, Jesus has written about. He has said, look, when, they don't just hate you. They actually hate me. They hated me first. And you are my representative in the world, and therefore they're going to hate you. This is why I brought a sword. The sword is, he's saying, you're going to have to do what concerning the things that you know about truth and righteousness? You're going to have to stand for it, which means you're going to have to go against or stand against. It does not mean that you and I be, become like the world and become ugly right? We don't get nasty and play the game of, I can call you more names than you can call me, right? However, you do have to stand on what's righteous, and you do have to defend the helpless, the poor, the widowed, the orphan, right? You have to stand for what is right and what is wrong. So on the one hand, you don't want to be divisive in a negative way, but on the other hand, you also do not want to be a pushover, right? I did not, I did not br bring peace into the world. I brought a sword because by nature of the message of righteousness versus evil, God versus Satan, right? Not only just God versus Satan, but how about God versus your own nature, your own, you know, me, me, me attitude that we all have. We are, we are seeing this spiritual warfare of what is going on. And in this week's homework, it's going to be, it's going to come to its culmination. It's going to come to a, a, a peak where it, the crescendo hits its peak. And then God is going to bring in the real peace of the world. He's going to bring in the, the, the kingdom of his reigning and ruling. Very interestingly, though, when you go into eschatology and study, there's going to be a thousand year reign yet when Christ does come, right? Is it all going to be peaceful and, and great at that time? No. So don't, don't get your hopes up too soon. That everlasting, that peace where there's no more tears, no more sorrows, no more division, divisions among us, when does that occur? When, at what time in history will we have that? After the millennial reign. There's going to be a thousand-year millennial reign when you and I are going to be put in charge, the scripture says. He's going to let us rule and reign with him for a thousand years on this earth. Now, we didn't cover that in our homework this week, but I'm just kind of laying that out there as your perspective because we're going to do a little bit of a timeline here. And I want you to remember, although I, I didn't 
I honestly did not write down a timeline. I'm going to let you guys tell me what you, what you want to see on that timeline. As you ask questions and as we have things come up here, we'll do it together. Some of us have had more teaching on this subject than others. Um, and so it's going to be a, a matter of trying to balance. I want to stay as close as we can to the what's given to us right here in the text and what's been given to us through cross-references so we don't go too far because we'll, we will overwhelm those who have not done this kind of study yet before. However, I do think it's really important to not leave today's study with anybody feeling like the rug's been pulled out from under them and that they don't, they don't get a, a good grip on the end, right? The end is ultimately who has victory in this? Yeah. Martha, yeah, immediately she's like, mm. <laughs> we we have the victory because of who Jesus is and what He did for us, and because of God, our our Savior. Really, He is the one who is going to bring this all to its final end. And I tell you, it depends on in which camp you're standing, whether you will be very happy about that or whether you will be very sad. So today's homework is our opportunity to get to see some of this. Now, the amazing thing to me is throughout the scriptures, how, how much do you see in scriptures about Jesus's second coming? A lot. As a matter of fact, I've been told that there's actually more about the second coming than there is about the first. His first coming is noted, and there's like hundreds. I, I have a little thing here about... Here's 100 prophecies fulfilled by Jesus, but I've heard there's like 350 or something like that. I can't remember now the exact number. It, it's fleeting in my little brain, but there was a lot. But 100 prophecies about Jesus' first coming. How many fulfilled? Every single one. So if that's true, and what we're looking at today is telling us about his second coming, how assured are you that the, everything that we're looking at in here is going to happen? Now, tell me this also. As you're talking with people who want to allegorize Scripture, how do you explain to them or how do you defend the fact that you believe that these things are literal and not allegorical or imagery or other kinds of fleeting things? By this point, if Jesus came and fulfilled these and he did so literally... Will he also literally do exactly what he says concerning his second coming? How hard is it when, for you and I when we go through scripture, though, to parse out first coming from second com coming in some of the, the writings of the prophets? How hard is it? Do you, can, is it... It can be very confusing. I know I heard a pastor today say how simple it was, and I'm going, oh, come on, you've got to be kidding me. It really isn't. It, it is, on one hand, there are some sim simplicities to it, right? That the, the ones that the big pieces that are really clear, you can lay them out. But then there are some vague things. What is the most vague of all the things about Jesus' second coming that just keeps people going, I wonder when. That's right, that rapture. We know that concerning the rapture of the church, there's a lot of different views on when that's going to take place. But what do we know about its taking place? 
Right. Okay. So there's there's one opinion is that it will take place before because those things which happen during it, huh? For unbelief. That's right. And it's also you. In a way, Kathleen, you were correct because it is for the Jewish people too. Because it's but it's the nation of of Israel specifically, not so much the individual, but for a nation. Because God has made promises. For instance, in the book of Romans, He says these promises were made; they're irrevocable, and I will save all Israel. And why does God say He's going to do that? Does anybody know why He says He's going to do that? Oh, they're so special. They're so good. He promised them because they're just such nice people. I know he made a promise to Abraham, but why is he going to fulfill it? Why is he? he because he keeps his word. Yes. There you go. Because he's, he is fulfilling the um, proclaiming of his holy name. He says, I will vindicate my holy name, which has been blasphemed among the nations. And by the way, it was blasphemed most most uh, blatantly by his own people, the ones who were given his name, Israel, who were called to be his holy nation and his people who would proclaim these things to the world. And yet they they blasphemed his name by their behavior, by their lack of faith, by their lack of obedience to his laws, right? So this is an amazing subject line. As we look at this, what we have to just always kind of keep in perspective is God has said and God will do. He said he will do it, and I believe that he will do it. We have seen what he did concerning Jesus' first coming, and as literally as all those things happened, so too will the end of coming be. Everything that we are looking at in Luke 21 will exactly happen. I know, it's it's kind of scary, isn't it, when you look at it? However, what you have to understand is, who are those times for, specifically? What is his design purpose in it? Is what God's doing an evil thing? I mean, look at all the devastation, the plagues and the famines and the wars and the disturbances. and the, How horrible is that? Is that is God being fair in all that? Is, is that a good and loving God that would do that? Yes. So his his objective is to bring people in, into salvation. His objective is not that through the hard times. Have, have you ever tried to bring a person to Christ that you've witnessed to for many years, but often what they have to do is get to their lowest point before they finally turn? I kind of see that here in this analogy in my mind. That's just the way I've kind of pictured it. Um, I might be wrong, but I see that what I see God doing generation by generation, year after year, from one people, one nation after another nation, kingdom after another kingdom, God continually reaches out for man. His word has been proven to them as truthful. And by the way, his ways are good and right. And loving, right? They're, it's justice. And yet people keep resisting, keep resisting, keep resisting. When you look at the kings and prophets study, the cycle with those people were how when God would forgive them because of their repentance, but then very soon after that they would start to fall away into sin again and a total rebellion, then God would send a prophet, and then the prophet would begin to tell them, this is how you can be made right again with God so that God will remove his judgment. In that cycle, of 
being in right standing with God, falling away, God sending his word, and then God, and then God uh, bringing punishment upon them, right? Just judgment upon them. What, what do you see in that cycle that applies to basically history on the whole with God? How does he go about in many cases, when, and is it necessary then? Right. He finally smites. Exactly. Because, and honestly, this is parenting. Is it not parenting 101? You tell your kids these are the rules. You hope that they're going to obey. But then when they don't, then you give them a warning. You, you send your word again. Listen, I've told you this is what's going to happen. And then when they still do it, what do you do? You punish them. They're grounded for life. Go to your room and you're there until you're 108. You know, no, you're not dating until you're... 30, right? I mean, you, you do whatever you think is necessary as a parent to try to get their attention. And then finally, when the punishment is the right one for that person at that moment, what do they end up doing? Thank you. You're our hero. Thank you, Thank you Robert. He got the AC going. Feels so much better already. Um, okay, okay, so this is where we're at in this cycle of things. God is at this point in history, he's bringing his son. He sent his word, right? The man has fallen away, correct? Into sin. Well, how far into sin? Well, look around, right? Now he's sending his word again with his prophet. This time his prophet is who? Jesus himself. Well, Jesus, right? I'm looking eschatology. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't quite give you enough info. So, he sent his word, they fell away, he sent his son and reiterated his word. Now we're into judgment, right, that's about to come upon the earth. And hopefully at the end of that judgment, then what happens? Those who will turn, those who will repent, those who will change their mind, they are saved. Those who won't, they, fi they find their judgment and the, and the final you know, destiny for them is not a good one. It's eternal, it's eternal damnation. They will be separated from the God they rejected. You don't want God, then you won't have God. And I think that when the reality of that happens, what we've seen in Luke 16, the reality of that, what happened to the rich man when he found himself in Hades? Was there a repentance or attitude at that point? Did he have a little wake-up call at that moment? Send somebody, tell my brothers, right? Yeah, because now he's in real pain. He's in real separation. You didn't want God. You didn't want to live righteously. Now you, this is where you're going to be. This book is just loaded with insight for us about this. And so really, this subject right now is hitting a call. There's a question that's going to be posed, and he's going to address the question. And so that's what we're going to cover this morning. So let's start. Um, however, at the very beginning of Luke 21, there's a, the first subject that comes up is not about the end times. Where do we see Jesus geographically? Where is he? He's in Jerusalem and at the temple. He's at temple, right? So just so that you know geographically that's where he's at and when he's at the temple verses one to four what do we see i'm going to do this this is going to be luke uh outline we're going to do the outline of the whole chapter here okay what's the first storyline that we're given in luke 
Okay, say it. Okay, so how did you title one through four? Okay, there you go. Poor lady gives more than rich. Okay, that's excellent. That's pretty much it. Why why did she give more than rich? What do you see? What do you think is the message behind this particular inference? It's her heart. Why do you think this is uh, carried in 21 at the opening after what was said at the close of um, chapter 20? What did we see in chapter 20? Wow, excellent. That's a very good uh, culmination of those thoughts line. We see in 20 that he was addressing issues. Who were the people groups in 20 that he was basically speaking about that were insincere? The scribes and Pharisees, right? So scribes and Pharisees in 20, what we see with them on the whole in that book is they are really challenging his authority there, right? There was this big... Um, you know, it's kind of like I'm going to take your juju stick. I don't know if you guys understand that analogy or not, but there's a, a movie about the juju stick that always comes to my hit, mind when I see things like this. And it's one pits against the other to say, my power is greater than your power, and let's let's see whose whose daddy is bigger than the other daddy, right? Whose daddy is stronger? And so these these uh, Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees. All the leaders, all the rulers, they've at this point in the storyline of Jesus' earthly ministry, it's come to a place now where it, it has been progressive, but now we're at a place where they are really flat out in his face challenging him. You know, before they didn't like the things that he said and they were kind of covertly trying to come at him and attack him, right? But now they're really getting in his face in chapter 20 where they directly, it says actually specifically that they were trying to trick him into things. They were trying to figure out a way that they could have him arrested, right? They, and they didn't even care if it was legal. They just, at the end, they were switching back and forth from, May we let's try to catch him on something concerning the law that he would violate or break that. And when they, that didn't work, they they switched to well, let's go to something civil. So then they talked about paying taxes, right, to Rome. You know, is it right for us to pay to Caesar the the money? And Jesus came back, of course, with a stellar answer. What was his answer? What is? Yep, and to God. What is God's? And in doing it that way, what did Jesus do as far as um, uh, actually both sides of the fence? The 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 uh, there you go. I'm sorry, I'm tongue tied tied because it's like yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, he was he was addressing issues concerning the Roman law, and he was not going to violate the Roman law. And he's saying, look, give to Caesar what's due to Caesar. But on the other hand, he didn't leave it just there so that they could then attack him. Then he followed it up immediately with the other side of the coin and said, but you give unto God what's God's. And that way you don't violate e either one. Now, what for you and I in our life then does that kind of address? Does that help us in any way in our personal daily walk? Exactly. It really does. The government is not the real enemy, although it often feels like it is, right? It feels like the government is our enemy. But he's what he was showing us is that 
there are earthly laws and you're to, you are to obey them, right? You're to keep them. As long as they do not violate the higher law, which is God's moral law, right? So you give unto Caesar what's due Caesar, but you give unto God what's God's, right? All right, so he balances that. These people are attacking him. Um, he basically shuts them down. At the end of it, they, they said they didn't have courage to even ask him another question at all, right? <laughs> I love that. And so then when he closes it, closes it then he has this little... Uh, conversation about David, which was really, really insightful. Did anybody do any more work on that David statement there at the end on page 139? Then he said to them, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord. And how is he a son? Now, the, the question is, for you and I, you have to get into the cultural mindset. How do you resolve this, and what is, he, what is the point that he's making here? What is Jesus' point? That he's the son of David? Is that his only point? No. What is he actually trying to get the people to see? If, if the, the Messiah, the Christ who comes, um, if David, who was a patriarch, basically his ancestral head of his family, of his bloodline, David, if you, ha okay, let's do it this way. I, I need imagery, okay? David, right? Jesus. David came first. And in patriarchal customs of the day, he's the head of the house, right? He's the patriarch. Jesus, being his son, is subordinate to him, correct? Then why does David call him Lord? He, because he is. But what must you confess then about this son of David that makes him superior to David who is his ancestor? Confess about him. He's, he's Lord, but he's also he's the son of God. He is actually God incarnate. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Why is he greater? It's very much like what happened with Abraham and the Melchizedek encounter, where he gave him a tithe. Why? Because he saw him as superior. He was a, a, a symbolic imagery of the one who would, was going to come. He submitted himself unto one. He should, have been the, he should have been the head, Abraham. But instead, when Melchizedek came to him, he submitted himself to Melchizedek and gave him an offering. He was acknowledging his superiority. Yes. Oh, yes. Good one. That's another good one. Okay. In that, there's a type, basically. It's a type, they call it, in Scripture, where there's types of Christ. And there are scenarios that get set up that give you imageries or concepts about a spiritual truth. It's a little bit like parables, kind of, right? There's a there's a earthly story going on with a heavenly meaning. Anytime the subordinate becomes exalted above the patriarch, the picture in this one Jesus, who became then superior to David, shows us that what Jesus was trying to get them to confess in this moment was that Jesus was God come in flesh. That he wasn't just a son of David. 
and therefore he was going to come and sit on the throne in the lineage of David. Not ju- that is not what he wanted them to see, although that is true because he promised David, right, that he, he would have a descendant on the throne forever. And so in some ways Israel was yet believing that there was just a lineage thing that was going to take place, right? But what he wanted them to confess in this moment in chapter 20 was that Jesus was not just in the lineage, but he was God himself come in flesh, and that's why he is superior to David. Does that kind of help you a little? You like my little markers? That was a, that was a good analogy. I have to remember that. It's too bad it doesn't translate to the video or the audio tape. <laughs> but anyway, I, I do think that this little passage there in 20 was complicated if you didn't really understand that what he was hitting on was the customs and their thinking. They're, first of all, by custom, the, the, the uh, subordinate never gets praised by the superior. It just doesn't happen. And so what he's doing was showing them that by the fact that this happened, that David did submit himself to the one that would be coming after him, that the one coming after him was superior. All right. Now, so now we got that one all ironed out. Then we go back. And so what does he do then in 45 to 47 at the close of 20? He warns them. Because what has been going on with these people, these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, what have they been doing? Yeah. You know, what was interesting is earlier talked about, um, I'm trying to see. I think this is the one where it talks about, oh, it is here. I think it's here. No, it isn't. I'm, I'm losing my mind. I was thinking there was a thing in here about marriage. But it's not in there. Anyway, okay, so Jesus warns him about the scribes. Basically, he's warning them that they are going to receive a greater condemnation. So he basically ascribes to them a a judicial uh, order, yeah, or a condemnation. He condemns them and says, look, what they are teaching you, what they are, the way that they are leading you is wrong. And I don't want you, I want you to be warned of them. Because what is our natural inclination when you see a leader, particularly a spiritual leader, in any capacity? Yeah, that they're so much, that they are to be respected, that they know. Uh, surely they know, right? The, this is why Paul says he of the Bereans they were of more noble mindedness because they examined the scriptures to see if what Paul was teaching them was actually correct, and that is a noble minded thing to do. And it's a, what you should be doing for me, for our pastors, our leaders, whoever you sit under. If you turn on the radio, you need to investigate if what they've said is actually true because humans are flawed. And we can make errors. We can we can fail you sometimes. But in the case of the scribes and Pharisees, their intent was so obvious and their motives were so corrupt that Jesus warns them, look, they don't just make mistakes. These are not just oops. This is the intent of their heart. And one of the things that we've seen progressively through Luke is the intent of their heart is to do what with Jesus? To kill him. They want him gone. They want him arrested or killed even. They, don't, they just want him gone. They do not like the adversity he's bringing because what it's coming against for them is their authority. So that's why chapter 20 is all about them challenging his authority. They want their juju stick back. They want their power back. 
Okay? So as he closes, Jesus warns them about them. Their attitude is the more money you give in the temple, the more tithes you give, what does that do for them? It lines their pocket and makes them richer, right? Because they're in charge of all that money. They get portions of all that money. So Jesus has just warned them about these men that they have a condemnation coming. Don't trust them because their motives are impure. And then he opens 21 and gives an analogy about perspective of what the the uh, Jewish system was teaching about people who gave concerning the reality that how God sees it. So there's the contrast. God sees giving from the perspective of what? Your heart. The, the amount of sacrifice, right? He says about her, he put, she put more in, in than all of them. Why? In verse 4, she gave out of what? Out of her poverty. Good job, Juanita. Out of her poverty, all that she had to live on. So her sacrifice was a, a true sacrifice. It was a small amount of money, but it was a great sacrifice. But when the Pharisees look at that, they go, ah, who cares? It's a, all she gave was a, a, a little tiny, what do they call it, a mina? Is that what they called it? I can't remember. A mite, that's right, a mite. So she gave a mite, which is like one-fifth of one penny or something like that. I mean, it was like nothing. And so they looked at that and, stu and snubbed her. But Jesus looked at her and he praised her. I love this storyline. On the one hand, you've got these Pharisees who are all about the pomp and circumstance and the, and the, and the, the, the measurement of life and reality from their perspective is, how is it going to give me power and how is it going to give me more money? And what Jesus does is he looks at the heart and says, who is she committed to? Who is she willing to lay her life down for? And who is she willing to give all that she had for? Yes. Right. Yep. Okay. So let's write this up here. At the temple, one to four, basically it's just that Jesus praises um, a poor widow's gift. You might want to put a contrast on that. The Pharisees, they would snub it. Because as, as, you know, basically nothing. It was, it was a very small amount of money. For, for them, it was all about the money, right? He praises the poor widow's gift because of the heart, right? And it's in contrast to what the Pharisees or the Sadducees would have done, which is they would have looked, looked at it with a, a disdain because they would not consider it to be enough to, for them to bother with. But Jesus just shows the contrast there in how God looks at it and how they were looking at it. Okay, now let's go to the next part of it then, five and six. What goes on in verses five and six? Yes, he does. Now, he, so he says, while some were talking about the temple, 
that it was adorned with beautiful stones. Now, if you didn't, if you hadn't connected the fact that the temple is geographically where he was location-wise, it's now made it very clear. But it really just the fact that he was at the treasury up in verse one, that should be marked in the same way. Treasury and temple can be marked in the same manner. And then he says, so they're talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts. And he says, as for all these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will uh, not be one stone upon another which will not be torn down. Now, have we heard this statement before? Where is it? Where was it seen before? Let's go to 1941, and it's all the way through 44. Somebody read that for us, because if you and as you read it, I want you to see the similarities of wording here. 41 to 44. Okay, the time of your visitation is referring to what then? Jesus' first coming. Now, how is it that they should have known about the time of their visitation? How could they have possibly known? There you go. What prophet specifically spoke of this time? Isaiah, okay, and our very favorite one, how about Daniel? How about Daniel chapter 9? Remember in 9, there's a section in there, I think it's like 27 to 20, 27, 28, 29, I think it's like, it might be 26 to 29. There's like three or four verses, and it talks about what's going to come upon you and your people, Daniel, and he talks about a prince that is to come, and that at one point that prince will be cut off. And he says, from the issuing of a decree until the time of his coming, it shall be. And he gives exact uh, measurement of time. Now, when you and I do Daniel, we're going to study that back out. And it's been a lot of years. What, it's probably been eight, nine years, ten years since we did this last, right? It's been a while. So it's kind of a little rusty even for me yet. But we are going to go back and really parse this out. And although she did not take us there, I'm just going to encourage you to go look at that for yourself. But if you look at Daniel 9, 26 to, to where th those passages, you'll see it when you hit it. Say it again. Okay, 26 and 27, he literally gives a timeline from the issuing of a decree, and that decree was issued by uh, um, Cyrus, I think it was, right? And so when we study that, you'll get all those references, you'll get all those point marker points so that you can actually know for sure that this is what we're talking about. Had they listened to Daniel, they would have known exactly when Jesus was going to come. And so he says, but you missed it. Why? Because your your ears were sopped up, your eyes were were, were blinded, um, and therefore these things have been hidden from your eyes now that are going to take place. And so these are going to these things are going to happen. There's going to be a destruction that's going to come upon this temple that you so treasure. And by the way, one of the things that hit me: How many have been to Israel? 
and seeing the Dome of the Rock and all that. And when you saw that, and you saw that the temple was torn down, and as you, actually, I think there's a reality sort of that happens when you're actually present and you see something for, in person. What went through your mind when you see there is no, no temple there any longer? If God is the all-powerful God, and he is, why did he allow his temple to be torn down? There you go. Um, obsolete. Hebrews? Oh, there, 8, 9, and 10. It came. It was slow, but it was coming. <laughs> In Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, it talks about the old covenant becomes obsolete, right? And when it becomes obsolete and it's no longer needed, do you think that there was a message by God? For the people whose eyes were closed up to this point, they totally missed his first coming, even though it was prophesied, and they could have numbered it out. They could have counted it out on a calendar and figured it out and known exactly when he was coming, or at least narrowed it down to a really close time frame, so that when he came, they would have recognized him. But because they didn't do that, they in other words, their eyes weren't toward heaven. They weren't anxious for his coming, like we as believers today are anxious for his second coming. They weren't looking for it, so they missed it. And Jesus says, but for that reason, not one stone will be left upon another. I'm telling you, there's another sign I'm going to send you. You were so blinded to that first sign. I'm going to give you a second sign. I'm going to tear down this temple. And what is the message I'm sending to you? It's obsolete. It's no longer needed. Why? Because of what John said when he saw Jesus approaching him at the, at the Jordan. What did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. No longer needed. And I remember standing there and looking at that temple. I went, wow, how profound that message is. If, you are, if you're actually a Jewish person and you believe your God to be God Almighty who spoke a word and this world came into being, and there you see no temple. Why can't a mighty God keep his temple in place? It should make them go, hmm, the, the, you know, the little, the little clocks in their heads should be twirling and the little wheels are grinding and they should be thinking and parsing this out and going, I wonder why God would remove his temple. Why would God allow his temple to be torn down? Not one stone left upon another. Why? But they're not reasoning. Why? Their eyes are closed. Their hearts are hardened. But he's saying, not one stone will be left. I'm going to give you another. In a way, this little message right here in chapter 19 um, is, a, is a message of, okay, you didn't listen to me the first time. I'm going to give you a second message. I'm going to say it to you again in a different way. The first way I gave it to you through Daniel the prophet, this time I'm going to give it to you through a visual. I'm going to take away the temple so that you'll be forced to try to rationalize why did God take away the temple. Right? And if you're reasoning it at all, God is the sovereign over the nations as well. He could have made it and allowed a nation to allow them to have a temple, which he did do earlier in history. The temple had been rebuilt once before. Could he rebuild it again? Yes, but he didn't allow it. Why? I'm sending you a message. It is done. The temple work is done. I came to fulfill the law. Right? So now we're into 20, or uh, we moved on to, to 20 where he says this about them, that, that he was warning them about them. He's, or I'm sorry, in 21, in 5 and 6, where he says, and one stone will be not left upon another. He's making a reference to what time frame? 
70 AD. When what occurs in 70 AD? The temple is falls. It's a historical fact for us now. So in hindsight, it's super duper easy for us, right? We we can't miss this message. So what did you title uh, verses 5 and 6? Okay, Jesus warns temple will fall. I don't know if you saw that as a as a almost like a, another prophetic word of utterance for, from him. He did prophetically say it's coming again. Another prophet made another prophecy. Daniel made the first prophecy. Jesus is prophesying again. They didn't listen the first time. Will they listen the second? Isn't that pretty interesting when you see it from that perspective? Now it kind of like makes the flow of thought make a lot more sense here, right? Okay, now we hit seven, and now we're going to get into some of the really cool stuff. Not that it isn't all really cool, but, you know, starting in 7 is very interesting. I isolated chapter uh, verse 7 all by itself because I think it's like a, it's kind of like a, a marker place where then everything that follows it is going to relate back to verse 7. So what happens in verse 7? He gives them um, a question. The disciples do what? They ask him a question. Disciples ask a question. Or several questions, but ask questions. Okay. Number one, when will? And number two, what will? What will be the signs? Okay. Now, the when will, when will, when will what? Well, these now these things is not clearly defined in the in the statement of the question though. How do you determine what he's talking about? What will what will these things be? What are the these things? These things about what? What is it? When he says, when will this thing happen? What is the thing that he he's asking about? And how do you determine what the question actually is? Okay, what preceded it and what? follows it in the answer, right? If you go, if you keep moving forward too as well, correct? When you moved forward in this and he began to give the answer to the question, what was the culmination of his uh, information? Where was he taking them to? The when? The second coming of Jesus. So the question is about when will Jesus come, right? When will the Son of Man be coming? And also, he says in 31, I want you to recognize that when you see all these happening, recognize that what? In 31? The kingdom of God is near. So they were asking questions about Jesus' coming and the coming of the kingdom of God. Are you following me on that? Okay, so let's put that in here. When will the kingdom of God come? Okay, so that's the question. And what will be the signs of its coming, correct? Good question, right? It is a good question. So here's our questions. Now we're going to go about answering the questions. Jesus will do that next, right? So now what you were supposed to do uh, in your homework time is, is do an awful lot of marks and references to time and location, correct? Now, Interesting. I'm going to I'm going to bring this point out now instead of later because I don't want to miss it. But where are we when you look at uh, starting with the question in in verse seven? Geographically, has he moved? 
we see that he's at the temple in the at the first four, uh, six verses, right? He's at the temple. He's talking to them about the temple, talking about the woman putting money in the temple. But where is he in eight eight forward? Well, there's a subtle hint to us in this chapter. However, the really the only way you're going to fully develop this is if you compare it with the synoptics. So I sent out to you a synoptic. Uh, observation worksheet. How many of you guys got that and were able to print it? Okay. Helpful? Was it helpful to you? Okay. I want to see if I can, hold on. I'm looking, here's mine. When you look at the synoptics, and that's what I want to do right now. Hold on. I'm going to pull this out, I think, so I can hold up my pages for you guys to look at. This is one of those precept um, tools that I have found through the years has been so valuable. Sometimes what I end up seeing when I make a comparison is nothing much just shows me. It doesn't really tell me a whole lot more, maybe a couple words here or there, but it's not always that significant. But in a chapter like this one where it's talking about end time events, which are a little complicated, and they're complicated because they've not yet been fulfilled, right? So we're still kind of grasping at trying to fully develop it. And I can tell you that as each generation gets closer and closer to the end, it becomes more and more clear because more and more things begin to happen. So what used to be really hard for us to understand, what used to be really difficult for the early church was the concept of the church. Finally, that's been resolved. Do we all get it? There's a church age. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Easy. Move on. Right. Well, what's complicated for us right here and now is yet some of these things about the end. So we have to be really careful to try to do the very best we can. Now, we're not going to do it perfectly, and I am certainly not a prophecy expert. I will never claim to know all the answers or have, you know, the perfect scenario all ironed out in my head. However, I do know there are tools that can help us be as objective as possible. You want to compare apples to apples, oranges to oranges, right? You want to... Um, one of the things we're going to do when we do our in-time work, when we get into doing uh, Daniel and Revelation, is we are going to develop the, the skill of uh, looking for qualifiers or identifying markers that give us identities, right? So we're going to be able to identify Satan, for instance, or the Antichrist. We're going to see the Antichrist. We're going to know what his identifying markers are. When certain things are said in Scripture that are certain words that are triggers, we're going to know, oh, that's talking about him. And then um, things like even the end times, the words wrath. Have we seen the word wrath? And, and um, wh wh hold on a second. Let me look in here. Uh, distress, wrath, vengeance. Those are trigger words, by the way. If you don't know, those are seen in verse 22 and 23 of Luke 21. Are you all with me? If you didn't mark those in a significant way, at least circle them. Because those are identifying markers that once you get into eschatology studying, you're going to start to learn that those qualifying words, those are words that are identifying markers. And they kind of narrow you down into a certain time frame. Can the word wrath sometimes be used in other ways? Yes. But you'll know by the subject line, by the flow of thought, by the use of it in context, whether it's speaking of a specific time in history or whether it's talk, talking about something more general. In this case, are we talking about something that's going to happen at a certain specific time in history? 
Yes. Okay. He's talking about when will this thing happen, this coming of the kingdom of God, and what will be the signs of its coming? So if we're talking about that specific time in history, we've narrowed it down, right? He's talking about only a specific time. not talking about in general wrath, is he? He's talking about a wrath. So when he uses those words as a student of eschatology and of having done Revelation and Daniel previous to this so that some of this all makes bigger sense to me, I'm telling you those are qualifying markers. They're identifying markers. So just know that those are the things that you're looking at. So in this one, we're trying to say, we're trying to look and see timeline and and um the, the way this is unfolding, is the synoptic gospels going to clarify for me the same things about the same time and the same thing in history? Is it the same? And what would you say for those of you who looked at your synoptic observation? Do you think Matthew, Mark, and Luke are speaking about the same thing, answering the same questions? Yes. Okay, good. I'm glad you saw that. Now, what I did for, for those of you who did this is I took Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I laid them out side by side, and every now and then I gave you certain things where I, I lined them up with boxes. Do you see what I did? And the reason I did that is because there are certain places that are really clear markers of something significant. In this case, we're looking at the thing, and they questioned him saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? That's in Luke 21. Let me read it to you from Mark. Mark says, And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew were questioning him privately. For tell us when all these things will be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Does that sound like the same question to you? Now, we've now identified something that we didn't have from Luke. We now know where is he? He's on the Mount of Olives. Where was he before in verses 1 through 6? He was at the temple. So now he's at Mount, Ol Mount of Olives. There you go. Okay, it almost tells us that, right? It actually validates what I just showed you, okay? What, tw verse 37, is that what you said? Okay, verse 37, what it does is it tells you the two places Jesus is in those days when he's right at the temple. It's just before he's going to go to the cross. What is he doing? In the daytime, he's at the temple doing what? Teaching, and at night, where does he go? To the Mount of Olives. So when you compare synoptics and it says to you, where was he? On the Mount of Olives. Who was with him? This is really cool. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and they were questioning him how? Privately. So who do you think the eyewitnesses were that this author, Luke, received his information from? Oh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. How about that? That's a pretty big insight for us. We now know he got this account that he's giving to us in consecutive order directly from the apostles. Pretty amazing. Or somebody who said what the apostles said, but I bet it had to be one of the apostles. Okay, now 
um, he says in Matthew 24, something similar. Go over to 24, Matthew 24, verse 3. And this is how it's said there. Same exact thing. There's a time lapse between those first six verses and starting at seven. But in Matthew 24, it's uh, verse 2 ends where he says, I tell you truly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another, which will not be thrown down. Same as what we just read? Yes. Now in 3 of Matthew 24, and he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Have we now clarified the question? Even better, although we could get it from Luke 21 all by itself by simply reading forward or as uh, Martha said, go back and look at what has been the subject line previous. But he's saying there's a, something coming, and I'm wanting you to identify it for me. And how did we just now do this with this tool, objective tool? I'm not, I'm not doing anything to force it. I'm not trying to rationalize it in my own head. I'm not trying to reason it through with you. I'm showing you it lines up. They ask the same question. It gives more insight, and Luke s validates that. But it validates it by you observing it carefully and comparing it to the other two. Takes a little bit of work. But honestly, this tool, this was a godsend to me. I mean, the Lord helped. He just gave me this idea. Because I was getting so lost. I remember when we were doing this in, um, I think it was we were at this point in the Revelation study. And I was... Uh, Kay was taking us through Luke and was trying to give us some time factors, which she and I don't agree. And I'll just tell you that up front. We don't agree on all how she looks at it. Um, but this tool is what God gave me to line it up so that I could see what does match and, you know, be as objective as I could. And when I saw it in this sheet, I went, oh, my gosh, this is so clear. Look at the, the matching up in verse 4. Four over here in Matthew 24, he says, And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Is that how our next section opens? Yeah, in verse 8 of 21, See to it that you not be misled. In, Ma in Mark 3, he says in verse 5, And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Exact same wording. As you move down in verse 6 of Matthew 24, he says, But at that time, not is not yet the end in verse 7 of mark it says but that is not yet the end and in luke 21 it says in verse 9 but the end does not follow immediately same all the same line up yeah then he goes on he says nation will be against nation in matthew nation will begin against nation in mark luke nation will be rise against nation so if you keep moving, you can see how my markings are all identified color-wise. They match up. My boxes all match up. They have the exact same wording. Um, those who are with child, are, you know, there's this time of distress. But those who are uh, with child and those who nurse babies in those days, it says woe to them. Right? He says that in Matthew 24. In Mark 13, same thing. Woe to those who are with child. In Luke 21, woe to those who are with child. Lines up. Keep moving. Uh, 25 in Matthew. I have told you in advance. In Mark, he says, I have told you everything in advance. Uh, Luke does not say that part. But he says, um, instead, he speaks about the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled. Would you say that was I told you in advance? <laughs> kind of. 
not exactly the same wordings, but yes. <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that in there. All right. <laughs> um, then in verse 29 of Matthew, he talks about immediately after the tribulation of those days, uh, there are going to be the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Do we see that in Luke 21? Powers of heaven being shaken? Yes, we see it in Mark 13 as well. Then you will see the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the sky in Matthew 24, 30. Mark 13, 26, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Luke 21, 27, and then they will see the Son of Man uh, coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Okay, I think I've proven my point, right? I don't need to keep going. Um, I wanted to show you that to you. And for those of you who didn't do it, I highly recommend you either do one for yourself, and that that's how I did it, or you can just download the one I did and make your life easier and just print it off and put it into your um, observation worksheets just so that it's in there alongside of it. It's a, it was a great tool for me. And what it did for me was it showed me that all three um, uh, writers in the Gospels were speaking about the same time frame. It was the same question. They're slightly worded differently with, with some variations in information, but it's very slight. You can, you can literally go through and line up exactly almost word for word the comparisons. So it's the same flow of thought, the same thing is being portrayed, okay? So now that we've established that from my perspective, now when Kay teaches it, she's going to teach it differently. What I wanted you to know, though, is this. I am not disagreeing with Kay about the message she's teaching about 70 AD. 70 AD, in fact, did happen. I just happened to think that it was already addressed up in verses uh, 6 when he says, not one stone will be left upon another. And that's all he says about it. He had already mentioned it earlier in chapter uh, Luke 19, 40, uh, 41 through 44, where he talks about, you missed it, I t you know, but and, and Daniel, you, you should have seen the time of your visitation. Daniel t prophesied about it. He didn't say that, but he says that it was prophesied that this would happen and you missed your time of visitation. So I'm going to give you another sign. And he gives another prophecy. And this one is about the temple falling down in 70 AD. So I think that it all lines up. I think that it's saying the same thing. I do think that, however, when she goes in and says that some of these things in Luke 21 are actually more information about 70 AD, I think she's just wrong on that. I would love to give her this observation worksheet. <laughs> But that's a little presumptuous on my part, maybe. But anyway, okay, so that's how I'm teaching it because that's how I see it. And if you don't agree, it's going to be no problem because 70 AD did happen. So we're not arguing about that at all. 70 AD did happen, okay? I think so. But only because she sees she sees some of these verses in 21 after the question of 7. She sees that those things that are said in 8, I don't know how far down she goes, but those verses are about 7. Um, she does talk about Daniel probably, yeah. Right, now that's the part where I'm telling you, I think these all line up. When you hit uh, the desolation of abomination here, right, right, these are the end times. 
No. The abomination of desolation is speaking of the second, during the uh, seven years of tribulation that are about to come upon the earth that Daniel prophesies about. There is a seven-year period, a covenant that will be made, and halfway through that it will be broken. That time, the halfway through when it's broken, this abomination of desolation happens. And in all three Gospels, it's speaking of that time in history. That's the abomination of desolation that will happen by Antichrist at the end. Okay? And if you're not totally with me on that, don't worry. First of all, did you print... Yeah. Did you print off this, Sarah? Did you print off this? Uh, I didn't print out, but I, I did write my seal. I, I know what they are trying to do. Okay, I would print this off. Right, but you know what? Here's... In my instructions... Okay, just let me tell... I, I'm not... I want you to... I want you to see this for yourself and not me just telling you. That's why I sent the observation worksheet, you know, a week or so ago, because I didn't want you all to come in cold turkey with me and go, I don't see what she's saying, because you wouldn't if you didn't do this. But if you do the synoptic observation worksheet, it becomes completely obvious. And this one point that she's talking about, the, the uh, um, abomination of desolation in verse... 20 of Daniel 21 or of Luke 21 Luke 21 verse 20 but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies then recognize that her what her desolation is at hand well now listen to in Mark 13 but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be the reader is to understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. In Matthew 24, it says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, now that's the one that she would have taken us to, um, and I think she did, uh, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand then that those who are in Judea are to flee to the mountains. Well, he says the same thing in Luke 21. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Is that the same wording? Yes. Now, here's the other part of this. 70 AD was a precursor or a foreshadowing of what would be happening at the end of times. So the fact that there are similarities to what happened in 70 AD and that what will happen at the end of the age, it's, it's no doubt that there are going to be some similarities. War is war, is war is war, right? And the topical location of their land is similar in that day as it was now. Yes, because then it talks about. Right. And here's the other thing. He's answering these questions. So he's not going to talk about 70 AD and muck the waters with something that's happening in 70 AD when he's answering this questions these questions right here in seven starting in verse seven he's now answering those questions before seven in six he mentioned the 70 a.d he did talk about one stone not upon another he had already taught it back in luke 19 he had already warned them about that but he's not talking about 70 a.d but k does take 70 a.d and put it in here so i know it's really it's it's but see again guess what 
guess what, you guys? No teacher is perfect, right? We can all make mistakes, and I'm, I'm not... Far be it from me to say she's wrong and I'm right. I'm not going to say that. But I'm telling you the tool shows me that this is a synoptic observation. And if you look at yours, and if you disagree, please understand that it's, it is not going to hurt history. And it's certainly not going to hurt the facts about the end times, right? The end times are still the end times, and those facts don't change. So as far as uh, doctrines about the end times, we're not messing with any doctrines. You may just look at that one point and say, no, I think she is right. She is talking about, he is talking about 7080. And that's okay if you want to see it that way. Okay? I'm, so we won't have to argue about that. But I, I'm going to teach it from the perspective that I see it because that's the only way I can do it as a teacher is just say, this is how I see it. Um, and, and I can tell you another thing. You go in and listen online to all these other really intelligent eschatology teachers and they all have different slants on things, right? They all disagree about things. Why? Because we're talking about things in the future yet, you know? And so there's going to be, there can be disagreements, but I feel like the Holy Spirit led me to do this synoptic observation worksheet to help me. I was begging God, God, I, I'm not going to be able to teach this. I'm going to just throw my hands up in the, and actually what happened when I taught this, I, how many of you guys remember when I taught this? I had taught what she was telling us to teach the week before. And then I went home, and I was so confused. And also, part of it was because you all, students, were asking me questions, and I couldn't make it line up. I, and so I was, you know, going, well, I don't know. And finally, this is what God gave me. And once I lined this up, I went, oh, this is where the problem is. This is not talking about 7080. This is all about the end times. Starting from that box of, uh, actually, starting from this box right here, down, it's all answering the question that was posed. So starting in verse 8 all the way to the end is all about the end times. Now, within that time frame, what you did notice, you marked all your time references, correct? You did notice, however, what he does kind of do is he does a dance back and forth. He says, well, they, well what are the signs of, the, of when those things are going to happen? And he starts out by saying, well, first... Before the end, something else is going to happen. Does he do that? Where did you see that in 8 and 9? Pardon? Yes, and also, but it's also before that. In, in 9, right? First, but before the end does not follow immediately. He says, when you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first. But the end does not follow immediately. So there are a so here's what I did on my observation worksheet. I'll show you how I did my. It's a mess, I know, but it'll give you some idea on how I helped visually to iron, you know, to, to clarify my insights on it. I took a colored marker and identified times of period by colors that were the same. So all the greens. That's speaking of first before the end times. So 8 and 9 are first before the end. Then I did it in 12, um, 12 to 19. Again, before the end comes, these things are going to happen. Okay? But he threw in the middle of this in 10 and 11. Then he continued saying to them, this is what's going to happen. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, plagues and famines. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But 
right, in 12, before those things of the end time, these other things in 12 to 19 are going to take place. So he, he kind of does a, before the end, he gives a little bit about the end, then he goes before the end, and then he goes into the end and takes it all the way through the end for you. So I did it by color coding. Can you see how I did it? Does that, do you see what I'm doing? And I did the same thing all the way through. This is one color, so that's about the things before the end, and then the gray is about the end. Okay? I did the same thing here. This is my question. The, the green is before the end, then I did the gray on what's going to happen in the end. Yes? The question. Yep. Yes. Yes, it is, because before these things about the end, there's going to be other things that are going to happen. That's why I went back to green, because before the end time things happen. So it starts out with, these are things that are going to happen first, because, right, before the, the end time follows, does not follow immediately. So these things happen first. Okay. Then these are some end time signs. And then he says, but before that time, yes. yep, and so, and I just put a gray cloud on it, follows all the way up. Right. Okay. Okay. So the these things is talking about that end time period. I found in verse 8, though, his first warning was that there will be false prophets. Mm -hmm. Yes. Isn't that interesting? So have we seen false prophets coming in his name? saying that I am the Christ. As a matter of fact, I know I've said this before in classes that we've talked before on the same subject, but I did a Google search years back on uh, false Christ in coming to Israel itself specifically, to going to Israel and saying, I'm your Messiah, I'm your Messiah. Hundreds, I mean, I had pages and pages and pages of false Christ that have shown up in Israel saying, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, I'm your Messiah. And so, the, and that started literally at the very beginning when Christ was crucified. Very shortly after that, false Christs began to come. And they have all through history, there are, there are hundreds and hundreds of them listed. If you go onto a web search and do a Google on that, you'll find it. Or I did anyway. I, maybe I lucked into it and got lucky. But I did find a, a Jewish record of false Christ that have come and claimed to be the Christ. So that's what he's warning about. And he's saying, look, before the end comes, there are going to be these false Christs, and I want you to beware. Be careful. Don't just follow them, right? Don't be misled. All right. So now what we want to do then is see, is look at this. We're going to do um, verses 8 and 9. And this is the first before. And I, I started it that way because before what? Before the, these things, right? Correct? Okay, first before, what's going to happen? So let's do a list on this. What must take place before? What must take place before? All right. <laughs> You're, okay. Let's do eight and nine. Many will come in my name. I'm going to do it right from the text. Will come in my name. Okay. 
Well, and well, also at the same time, right? Eight and nine. It look at and before the end. Oops, hold on. Let me re, let me rewrite that because he says first before these things. So let's put that up here first. And first, or the word before is used here. It's just semantically he uses, one time he uses the word first, the other one he says before. And in both cases, it's first, be, first before the end time, before the end time things, right? And the same thing, before the end time. Well, because he, he follows it in verse 9, he says, but the end does not follow immediately. Okay, so it's first before the end time things. That's not going to follow immediately. First, these things are going to happen. Many are going to come in my name, right? And uh, then he also says, he says, but before all these things, but before all these things about the end, because that's the question he's been asked, correct? So these are, so you can actually put, Verses eight and nine, and verses twelve to nineteen, all in one category, one list. They're all they're all talking about what's going to happen before the end time things happen. So he's going to tell them about the end times, but he's also at the same time going to be warning them about about the things that are going to happen first before that. Now, how important is that for you and me? What time is this first before the end times things happen? What, what time frame do we call that? The church age. So the church age, this is information for you and I in the church age. These are warnings for you and I that these are the things that are going to be taking place. And I don't want you to look at them and think that you're in the end times too soon. There's going to be some real specific markers that are going to be more profound than just these general things. And what I want you to know is these things are going to happen. Now, think about what happened in 70 AD. And that was going to follow very soon after this was written. So you have these disciples, including the writer here, Luke. He is about to enter into the 70 AD when it's going to look like they're at the end. Jerusalem is going to be surrounded, right? But there's going to be other things that he's going to tell us about the actual end times that are going to be much more profound and much more specific that are not going to happen during 70 AD. And he's showing him a distinction so that when he's going through the church age and 70 AD, he doesn't confuse it with what's going to happen at the end. So he's giving him both to look at. Does that make sense? I would sure make sense to me because if I had been living during 70 AD, I might think 70 AD was it. And guess what's going to happen at the end of 70 AD? They're going to be dispersed into all the land. Jerusalem is going to fall. The temple's going to be destroyed again. And they're going to be out there and they're going to be looking around. Well, where's Jesus? It was all a lie. It didn't happen like he said, but it did. He said, no, no, no. These things are going to happen, and the end is not going to follow immediately. These are things that are going to happen first. So the first things I want you to know, many are going to come in my name. That's in verse 8. And then he warns them, what? What does he tell them about that? Do, yeah, don't follow them and don't be misled, right? 
Don't follow after them. Don't be misled. You can make a longer list than I just did. But basically, don't be misled by the fact that there are going to be Christ, of which I just told you. There's a list of hundreds of them that did come after that in his name, saying, I am the Messiah. And then he says to them in verse 8 also, what will you hear about? In verse, uh, verse 8, you will hear of wars, right? You will hear of wars. And then he says to them another thing. Don't be what? Don't be terrified. Yes, uh-huh. Yes. Now, was that in, the, in 8 and 9? Many will say the time is near. That was that's a good point. I didn't put that one on my list. That's really good. So that's an eight. You said, okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna write that in. Many will say. <laughs> I messed that up pretty good. Okay. Many will say. The time is near. Okay, so many are going to come in my name. You're going to hear about wars, and many will say the time is near. Because there are going to be wars. Have there been wars? Have there been a lot of wars? Have a lot of these wars looked like... Think about the people who lived through um, World War One, World War Two, right? Even, well, I don't know if Vietnam quite compares, but it's similar. I mean, it was horrible. But I'm just saying the devastation, particularly with, with the Holocaust... When that was occurring and war was taking place at the same time and the persecution against the Jewish people, certainly that could have been misunderstood as being his second coming, right? But it was missing some other factors that are going to be shown to us here in a minute. And that's why he's giving us both lists so that we can compare them. And then he says in 1219, and before all these things, now he makes that list, we're going to go back to it, in 10 and 11, he begins to give the list of the things that you can that are uh, um, identifying markers of the actual end, right? And ke also keep this in mind, you guys. This is not the only place this subject is taught. I have another book right here that I started. These are observation worksheets about end-time cross-references. No kidding. Yeah? Look at these. Tons of them, tons of them. And, and this is not all of them. I know I missed some because I decided, this was a brilliant idea of mine about halfway through my Revelation study last time I studied. And so uh, all of a sudden, I went, oh, I should be keeping all these in one place. First of all, my book was getting too big, right? My Revelation book. And then the other thing was I thought, wouldn't it be nice to have all these in time um, cross-references all in one compact book. So this is something you might want to keep in mind when we when we do it. Start a separate observation worksheet that you have to make your own because when she sends you to those cross-references, she doesn't always give you observation worksheets. But I just copy and paste the text onto my own sheet. Now that one's one from Precept, but you can see like this is one I printed myself. I just printed out the text, gave myself space, and started marking it. But these are there's tons of this. So what we're getting here in Luke 21, whoops, what we're getting here in Luke 21 is just a, not even, I can't even call it the tip of the iceberg. It's like one little crystal of the iceberg that's still underneath. So keep that in mind that you're just getting this much of it here. You're not getting the full picture. But he's giving them enough that if they 
accumulate it like I did with all the other Old Testament references about the coming and the establishing of the kingdom of God. And think about your kingdom of God um, list. Did you guys do that? I don't know how many of you guys have been doing this. Hold on a second. I'm going to pull out mine for a teaching moment here. See if I can find it. Okay, just in Luke 21 alone, here we've got front and back, I think I've got four pages of reference, oh, three pages, three pages front and back of references about the kingdom, just in Luke 21, God, Luke, uh, chapter in the book of Luke, rather, just in Luke. <laughs> so think about how many places in scripture throughout the word of God not, and sometimes the word kingdom is not used. It's the inference about the kingdom. So you have to be reading texts sometimes and say, oh, it's talking about the end time kingdom. And that's another cross-reference. There are thousands probably. Okay? So just keep that all in mind as you look at Luke 21. We're getting a smidgen of the picture. But he is answering a specific question that they have posed to him. When will the, end, the when will the kingdom of God be coming, and what will be the signs of its coming? Right, and then he starts out by though warning them there's going to be a period of time before that. There's going to be some time in history, and and he says it very clearly. The, the end does not follow immediately. Now he leaves it open. He doesn't tell them how long, but he does tell them there's a period of time before the end times are going to happen. And I want you to be aware of these times and be able to identify them. And some of their markers are similar to what's going to happen at the end. But at the end, it's going to be much, much more intensified, much, much greater. Right? And so it's going to be, it's like how many, well, the guys can't relate to this, but maybe you can if you had a wife who had a baby. The difference between Braxton Hicks and labor pains right? I remember having Braxton Hicks with, particularly with my second one, more than my first. But my second one, I kept thinking, oh my God, I think I'm in labor. I think I'm in labor. I kept thinking I was in labor. They were terrible. But, but the doctor kept kind of giggling and he says, look, when you're in labor, you will know it. And I'm going, you think I would know this. I've already had one, right? But sure enough, the night that I went into labor with Eric, my eyes popped open. I sat up in bed and I went, I'm in labor. I knew the difference, right? So God is kind of doing that with us here in this text. He's saying, I want to give you the Braxton Hicks pictures. And then I'm going to tell you, but there's a time when you hit labor. And when you hit real labor, you're going to know it. And it's going to be very clear to you that you're now in the end times. And there's going to be specific markers that are going to make it really clear. And you can't deny them. And if you combine the signs with the the um, events that are going to specifically happen, and then you start bringing in all your other cross-references that are going to give you more insight, you're going to have it. You're going to know. So you can be assured of this. Before the end comes, before all these things about the end happen, 12 to 19, he says, what are you going to ha happen? And Celeste, you brought it up. You're going to be what? You will be persecuted. Okay, and so that's in verse 12. Um, what, can you give some more specifics on that? Mm -hmm. It's delivering you to synagogues and prisons. 
Boy, I tell you what, especially the disciples, you know they had to have... Yes. And when it's you personally, you feel like it's the end, right? It's like, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, when you, now, let's go back about this idea about being persecuted. Why are they being persecuted? Does it, did the text explain to us what kind of, because you can have persecution against you. You feel like you are persecuted, but what is this persecution about? For his name's sake. You are going to be brought for them. It says, for my name's sake. Okay, so that's in 12. And what are you to take encouragement about that? How, you know, think about, you know, the, the gospel writings give us demonstrations of this, but we also see it in our personal lives. When you are persecuted, and if you handle it well, what is it going to do according to what he's telling us here? What can persecution lead to? Yeah, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. Yes. Uh, opportunity for testimony. And that's in 13. But you, another thing that's going to happen, not only persecution, you're going to be hated, right? Okay, be hated. Is that all in one sentence? I missed that part. Betrayed. Oh, okay, we hated. Okay. Okay, and we actually had a whole lesson on that. Do you guys remember earlier in in the gospel he talked, which it says uh, parents will rise against their children, and that's the one about the sword. I didn't br bring peace, but I brought a sword, right? And he talks about how family members will come against family members, and all these things will happen. So these are what's going to take place before the end. And you know, uh, I liked 16 though. This is very interesting. 16 and 18. 16 says what? What's going to happen to you in this time frame? What can happen? Yeah, and some some of you will what? Yeah. Will be put to death. Now, here's the complicated part. But yet, is the way they say it here, yet, what? In, nine, in 18? Now, somebody reconcile those two opposites. <laughs> okay. Explain. Okay, so we're talking about spiritual death versus physical death, right? He actually talks about this in Luke 17. Somebody flip over to 1733. Because this was actually already addressed once before. It's actually been addressed more than once. But I, I found one in 1733 that I thought uh, was really good. And, and it was more recent. We just recently kind of looked at that particular verse. What does 1733 say? Okay. 
Okay, so what is it saying there? Now that you see this in context to this verse here of uh, 18 and 19, or 16 and 18 rather. What does it mean, some of you, what does it mean whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it? What does that mean? So what, what are you, who are you losing it for? Huh? For his sake. So if you are willing to die to self and, and forsake your own life and your own health and your own welfare and your own reputation and your own way about things, whatever, if you are willing to forsake all that for the sake of Christ, you are losing your life, basically. You're turning your life over to a king right? He's taking kingship in your life. And if you will, if you will lose your life, then you're going to actually preserve it. But if you try to hold on to your life, what's going to happen? You eventually truly will lose it because you will spend eternity in away from the presence of God and in hell. And so here he's saying kind of the same thing. Some of you will be put to physical death, but he said, well, actually, he uses the word yet, yet not a hair of your head will perish, meaning you will have salvation. There you go. By your endurance, you will gain your, and if you'd like to do so, you can insert there eternal, eternal life. Okay. Okay. Because even in the end times, even if you're persevering in the end times, there's a, possibility that you will lose your life even if you're a believer you could still die because of the 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 devastations that are going to come upon the earth at that time not everyone who gets saved in the tribulation period lives through the tribulation period some of them will die some will make it through but some will die and so what this is talking about is spiritual versus uh, physical. You could physically die, but you spiritually won't die if you are uh, holding fast to his name, if you're persevering for the sake of, of his name's sake, right? Okay, so that's a pretty good list. So here we've got in our outline, but first, first, uh, first before, I'm just going to add it here, before the end, uh, and then I just left that as a title because all of this has to be listed otherwise, and it's too much detail. So first before the end in verse 8 and 9, but now 10 and 11 comes in and interjects some things that are going to happen. What is, what is going on there? 10 and 11 gives us a nice little list. Tell me the list. Okay, recognize the signs. I'm going to put that up there as a title. And it's we're in uh, 10 and 11. And he says uh, earthquakes. And he doesn't just say earthquakes, though. He says great earthquakes. I heard a, a sermon this week from um, John MacArthur on this. And there's also someone else. Who was the other one? Uh, Rabbi, I think it was, and he, but he was saying that he went through this with his congregation. He was preaching it in a sermon to his church at that time, and he was talking about how how the devastations of these times and how great these earthquakes would be. And he went into a great deal of detail on this. If you're interested, you should go online and Google Luke 21 and John MacArthur's name and see if you can find that sermon 
really did a good job. He did a great job on this one. Okay, great earthquakes. What else? Okay. I'm going to put my little symbol up here about nations again. Okay. And this one here is about the kingdom of God over here. And again, it's also a, I'm going to put the same symbol over here. So, because I think that what you're going to see here is the subject about nations begins to pop up again. That there's a contrast between the nation of God that's coming and the nation of men that are, that are upon the earth in that time. And the things that are taking place. Nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom, right? Uh, earthquakes, other things are going to be what? Plagues, famines, and terrors. In that, I like that one. Great signs from heaven. But you know what? This one, one of the things, and the reason I like it so much now, the great signs from heaven in John's sermon, he talks about, and we didn't get into the details on this in our homework, but how at that time in the progression of things, of the unfold, there's going to be trumpets, uh, seals, trumpets, and then bowls, right? I got that right? Okay, and in the bowls time, the heavens are going to grow dark. And so when there's a sign from the heaven, great signs from heaven, is when, in particular when he says when Jesus comes, he'll come as a great light. And that's going to be a, a such a profound contrast to the darkness that they will have been enduring during those times of darkness because of the dimming of the heaven, the lights of the heaven and the stars falling and the, the sun and the moon basically being either cloaked or something along those lines, some, maybe smoke, I don't know. Could be the smoke that's rising from the earth. I mean, it's all subjectively, you have to kind of, you know, figure out what you think is going on there. But John MacArthur goes through that and he talks about the darkness that will take place. And he says, and the light, when you see the Son of Man coming, that's going to be a sign from the heaven, a great sign from the heaven. And I just thought, oh, that's powerful. It was a really good sermon. Okay. All right. So those are some of the things that are going to be taking place. Now, have there been plagues through the years? Have there been earthquakes through the years? And certainly, if you're a person living through an earthquake or a plague, it seems great, <laughs> right? So this in and of itself, by itself, would not be enough to really distinguish, would it? Okay, it's only a part of the picture. So what he's going to do is he's going to merge what he says in verses 10 and 11 then with a, a real qualifying marker starting in verse 20 because we, we looked at, 12 to 19 as being those things which were before. So now let's drop to 20 and go to 24. And he gives something that's much more distinctive. Yes. Yes. Do you see how I did it? Recognize the signs of the end. I'll put that up here. Signs of the end. And this is what must take place before the end. So this is before and this is the end. Is everyone following me? This is what's happening. Basically, if you want us right across at church age, that would be a good way of identifying that for you and I. This is the church age right here. This is what's going to happen, though, when the church age is ended and God begins to reckon and reason himself for Israel's sake. 
and that's a whole nother subject, but we'll, we'll get there. Okay, so 20 to 24, what do you see in 20? What does he tell you is another marker? But, do you see the word but at the beginning of 20? He's contrasting in 12 to 19 with what he's going to say in 20 to 26. So he's saying to you, before the end, there's going to be these persecutions because of my name in 12 to 19. But starting in 20, he says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that what? Her desolation is near. Now, this is interesting because her desolation, that word desolation is the abomination of desolation phrase that's used in Matthew and Mark. So if you combine in your mind that word desolation with a desolation of a, abomination of desolation, then what you're saying is this surrounding of Jerusalem is distinct from what happened in 70 AD. Okay, it, it's something specific, it's something different. And this is why I know that what he's doing is he's giving you uh, some, some similarities. These are certainly going to be things in the entire, the things that are going to take place before then, things that we have seen through the ages that have been occurring that do seem similar. But he's going to give you a qualifying marker that's distinct. And that's what he does in verse 20. He does it also in the other synoptics. He does it in... Um, hold on, let me get my page there. In Matthew 24, 15, in Mark 13, 14. So you might want to write these as cross-references right next to verse 20 on your observation worksheet. Yes, I will. Matthew 24, 15. It's actually 15 and 16. Then Mark 13, 14. And those are going to relate to Matthew or Luke 21, 21 chat, verses 20 and 21. Okay, so those are s parallel verses. So in Luke 21, he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are in the midst of the city depart and let not those who are in the country enter the city. Okay? Mark says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now in Matthew 24, he says it this way. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, in other words, where it should not be as according to Mark, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea do what? Flee to the mountains. So they're all three telling them the same thing. There's going to be a surrounding of Jerusalem. When that happens, it, when this desolation occurs, they're speaking of the desolation, the abomination of desolation. We read about this in other passages in Scripture. It's going to talk about a time when Antichrist is going to come into the temple and he's going to desecrate it. So if he's going to do that, what does that tell you and I about the end times when this occurs? What's going to be standing? A temple. So there's going to be somewhere in history, a period of time, when Israel is going to get their temple back. And they're going to begin to, again, perform their, their sacrifices, right? And they're going to be allowed to do that 
according to Daniel 9, for a period of three and a half years, then the Antichrist is going to break his word to them, and he's going to come in and commit this act of abomination of desolation. Okay? When that happens, let the readers be aware, I've told you this is going to happen, and what are they supposed to do? Flee. Now, who is the they? It's got to be the Jews, got to be, or and or other believers who are living in that area at that time and are witnessing this happen, right? Anyone in Jerusalem that visibly sees this happening is who he's addressing, right? Okay, so 20 and 24, we're going to say, hold on, get my list out here. Um... Okay, we're going to have Jerusalem surrounded by armies. And that's happened before, but this one's going to be distinct. And he says, recognize that her desolation is near. Have you seen that word recognize more than once? Yes. That's right. Those are commands, and they're 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 actually written from a language perspective of a sense of urgency and of emphaticness. It's like do this, you know. It's like you tell your children, "I said now," right? <laughs> I've done that before. They don't. They still didn't always listen, but I tried to be authoritative. <laughs> huh? Yes, it will be. It will be the same story here. So. What else is some of the other signs then are giving in, in here? There will be what? What else is going to happen in that time? The signs that are going on. Jerusalem surrounded, recognize her desolation is near what? Yes, okay. Uh, there will be great distress. Great distress. Uh, there we go. And you know why you know that? Because of our study in Daniel, when you see the times of Jacob's trouble, you're going to understand that you're going to start to tie those those trigger words of wrath, indignation, um, and vengeance. They're all going to be trigger words for you understanding that's the end time. That's what he's speaking of, particularly when he's talking about this subject matter of the end time. And so if you're talking about wrath, it's talking about the wrath of God. Now, if we're doing a timeline, so here we have the cross. We have Luke being written here, correct? And we this is all in the time of the church age, correct? We're going to hit a period in time where some of these things are going to happen. We're going to have the kingdom come. God's kingdom, right? Everybody with me on that so far? Yes? All right. So what we're talking about is a time in, front, in history right here that something is going to happen. And 
later you'll figure out why I've got it divided, but there's going to be a period where somewhere in the middle here, somewhere along the line of this activity, this thing is going to happen that's, it, that is being referred to here in Luke 21, also in Matthew 24, and in Mark 13, right? About the desolation. and a time of fleeing, correct? There's going to be a desolation that occurs, and they are to flee when that happens. <laughs> Even if all that's what you have at this point on your timeline of things, it still gives you perspective as to what we're talking about right here in Luke 21. He's saying that there's going to be something. Right now we're in this time right here, right? This is the time that we have said is called before. Or first. First and before. Right? That's what this time frame is here. Yes. Another word. <laughs> In Matthew and Mark, it makes, it makes mention to that. So first and before is what we're seeing here, called the church age. And then there's going to be signs of the end. And... You'll learn more about the birth pangs and exactly where that takes you to later. But for right now, what you under, all you need to understand is there's going to be a time somewhere in here on this time frame of called the end and his coming. Right? When Jesus comes, there's going to be a time. And then when he comes, he's going to set up his kingdom. Are you following me? Okay, and so somewhere in this end time are going to be these things that we're looking at in Mark 13, Matthew 24, and Luke 21. Pretty good start for a timeline on eschatology, if that's all, if, if depending on how much you study, that's minimal. <laughs> how many charts did we do on that? Oh, man, it gets crazy, doesn't it? It's so much fun. Okay, so in Luke 24, he talks about there's going to be wrath, there will be wrath. So you can put in here, flee, because there's going to be wrath. There's going to be, what was the other words? Um, vengeance. And distress. Okay. Well, <laughs> we'll see, won't we? Yes. Very good. Okay, there's wrath, there's vengeance, there's just, I'll bet the people are under distress too. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. All righty. So that goes. And he says that all this happens, and, and then he concludes in 24, and I'm, I'm not giving you the full list here, but in, at the end of 24, he says, until what? There you go. Now, did anybody figure out what the times of the Gentiles is talking about? That's true. They're very similar, but but they are different. Yeah. Um, you know what? Me too. I had, I went back and went first. I went, well, you know, that's the same. And then I went, oh, well, okay. If you split hairs, yes, there's distinction because Gentiles are Gentiles, right? Times of Gentiles. Um, 
different from. Yeah, okay. So time, so until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, if you are looking at the question, the question is about when will God's kingdom come, right? And until that kingdom comes, there is going to be nation rising against nation, and there's going to be persecution against God's children who are the kingdom to come, right? So just with that much information, what might the times of the Gentiles be? Gentiles in general are people who are not lovers of God in the scripture, just so you know that. There you go. While nations are still were, were ruling on this earth, while God's kingdom is not yet in place, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, these things are going to happen. Then when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, what's going to happen? Jesus' time comes. Jesus' kingdom comes. The times of the Gentile, by the way, the times of the Gentile technically began at the time when Israel lost their own rulership over their own land. So you and I have... St excuse me, have studied the kings and prophets, right? We've been doing that. We're on break for sure. But, uh, but, the, king, but the kings, remember the kingdoms until uh, the time of Solomon, who was, who was ruling that nation Israel? The Jews. Once they went into captivity into Babylon with Daniel, which begins these prophecies about all this, what happened when they came back on their land? Even though they got to go back to their land after their 70 years in Babylon, who was in charge of them? Other nations. Rome, Greece, the Medo-Persian, Greece, and then Rome, right? So Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Those kingdoms have been in charge over the Jews all this time in history. Right now we have Israel back on the land, but do they have their worship system back in place yet? No. So it's very interesting. It's, it's this picture about God, they, they lost the rulership of their own land. The Jews did. So the real technical, if you really want to parse it down to the real root of it, the times of the Gentiles is the times when Israel lost control of their own rulership. And Gentiles have had thumb over them ever since. And one day, what's going to happen with them? And what is it that they're still looking for uh, as far as their hope? When they saw Jesus in his first coming, what were they hoping? He was going to be the one to come back and reestablish rulership of Israel for themselves as a nation. They haven't had that happen yet. Why? We're in the times of the Gentiles. Yep. Yep. The times of the Gentiles, their rulership over, their, they have not fully had their king come yet. They Prior to this, remember, who was their king on their throne? David or a son of David, right? Do they have a son of David ruling over Israel yet? Not at the moment, but we do have one that came who was the son of David, who claimed to be their king and was crucified king of the Jews, right? But he's now talking to them about the fact that he is. there's going to be a time in between. It's, the end is not yet. 
And until that end, these things here, what must, must take place before the end, these are going to be things you're going to ha have happen to you. But there's going to come a time when something real specific happens right here about Jerusalem. And these times of the Gentiles are going to come to an end. And that will happen. The times of the Gentiles are fulfilled when? His coming, what, is he, what does he come and establish? King, kingdom. Right here is the times of the Gentiles. So let's say, um, let's put this right here, 70 AD for sure. But actually, no, I can't put it there. I have to put it back here. Um, Babylon. Thank you. I hadn't thought that through. Okay. All of that is times of the Gentiles. Okay, all the way until here, his coming, and then he'll establish his own kingdom. So we're getting quite a few things answered, aren't we? Not bad, guys. Where are we? Are we past time? We are way past time. Oh, I, forgot. I got lost in it all. Well, I think we covered pretty much all the way. The only thing we had left to cover yet was... Um, being on your guard and what and the distinction between him and the temple and on and um, at the Mount of Olives during this that time factor, which helps us yoke it together with the Luke and the Matthew. I'm so sorry. I just I like.